Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. This is the word of the Lord. If you like to sail, you certainly will know the name Joshua Slocum. Joshua Slocum is the first person to ever sail solo around the world. Circumnavigation. Did it back in 1885 to 1888. At 98. An amazing feat on his part in what he accomplished. I mean, it's like sailing or flying to the moon today. It was an incredible thing that he truly accomplished. Sailing 46,000 miles in about three years, three months, two days. And to think that he did it, dead reckoning. I mean, think about it. There was no GPS. How do you find your way anywhere today without whipping out our phones and GPS and tell someone's telling you exactly where to go? He set off across the ocean with a sextant where you take a sighting on the sun and the horizon, sighting at noon, take the horizon, write it down. If you're going to figure out your longitude, you need a chronometer, a very accurate clock. He had one clock that was an old clock that he bought for a dollar that didn't work well. And he had no charts. It's called dead reckoning, literally, to sail around the world. It was an incredible feat. He was born in 1844 in Nova Scotia, and he grew up on the water, loved being around the water. And when he turned 16 years old, his father, who was a stern disciplinarian, well, kind of helped force him to leave home. He wanted to get away. And so he went down to the docks. He signed on with a tall tri-mastered schooner headed for Ireland delivering cargo, and he was gone. He had run away from home. So began his life on the sea. By the time he got to Ireland, he was starting to study and to read, and he wanted to progress from being a deckhand to second-class mate, then first mate, and finally at an early age, he made captain, being entrusted with sailing ships, literally port to port around the world. Great responsibility. At 27 years old, he was already a captain and now making these kinds of deliveries. He sailed on the west coast down to Australia, to Sydney, Australia. And there at Sydney, Australia in 1871, he met Virginia Woolf. And meeting Virginia Walker, met Virginia Walker, they met, they dated, and they got married in one month. When you know, you know. She moved on board the ship with him and sailed from then on wherever he went. In the next 13 years, they had seven children, all born on the ship. She taught them how to read and how to write. She was their teacher. She made Joshua get a piano and attach it to a bulkhead so she could teach her children how to play the piano. She was an incredible mom under the most difficult of circumstances. 
she truly was the love of his life and brought such incredible joy. And then in 1884, they were down in Brazil and she got sick. She fell ill and she died, 34 years old. And when he buried her, he buried part of his soul. Several years would go by. He was trying to figure out what to do with the rest of his life as he kept on sailing, delivering different ships. But the kids had finally all gotten older, grown up, and left home. He had a friend who was a sea captain, a whaling captain. And he said to Joseph, you know, I have a, a sailboat I'll give to you. It really was kind of a joke. This captain had received this boat as payment for a debt, and it was in such disrepair. It had been sitting on the hard for the longest of time. It wasn't going anywhere. People joked about it. Captain, what are you going to do with that boat? It was 36 foot long. It was called the Spray. And so he gave it to Joshua, and all the people in town figured he was going to ultimately tear it apart, sell it off to scrap. But Joshua Slocum was needing to rebuild his own soul. And so he set to work on this boat, felling trees, learning how to make planks, steaming them, nailing them into place. He painted it with four coats of lead paint. That's what you used in those days. He got it all seaworthy. It took him two and a half years. And it was during that time of building it that he made the decision he wanted to solo circumnavigate the world. And so it was in April 1895 that he set sail from Boston. Set sail out across the Atlantic Ocean and in the end it would take him four months to sail the Atlantic and he hit the coast of Spain. It had taken so long many people thought he had already died at sea. Suddenly there he was, showed up in Spain. And while he was in Spain reprovisioning the boat, he got to talking to other sailors and telling them his plan that he was going to sail now through the Straits of Gibraltar, sail through the Mediterranean, go through the Suez Canal, go on through the Red Sea. And they said, that's, that's, a, that's a bad plan. That's a bad plan. The Mediterranean is full of pirates. We don't think you'll make it through the Mediterranean. But even if you do, you're sailing against the wind the whole trip. Instead of sailing east, you need to sail west. So Joshua Slocum thought about it. He was free to decide whatever he wanted to decide. And so he made a 180 degree turn and he left Spain and sailed back across the Atlantic to Brazil. Got to Brazil, came down the coast, went around the tip headed out to the South Pacific, on over to Australia, around the tip of Africa, and sailed back home. Three years, two months, two days, 46,000 miles. You know, it wasn't the shortest route. But the goal wasn't to see how quickly you could get through sailing around the world. The purpose of the trip was to learn something new. It was to grow as a human being. It really was to renew his soul. You know, it's been said, regrets aren't about failure. 
Regret is about all the things you wanted to do and you never did try. He was willing to try. And one of his great dreams was to be a writer. And so now that he came home, he had something to write about. And in 1899, he was busy writing. And in 1900, the book Sailing Alone Around the World came out. And it became an international bestseller, making him a fortune, making him quite famous and wealthy. It changed his life forever. And as I was thinking about Joshua Slocum taking off and going, well, I think we're going to go this way and I'm going to get to Spain. On second thought, I think I'm going to turn around and go back to Brazil and I'm going to go down and turn a different way. And it made me think about Moses, kind of what happened to Moses in the wilderness when God finally wrestled the people of Israel out of the control of the Pharaoh and they came into the wilderness. They came into the promised land and turned around and went back the other direction. They went this way, they turned around and went that way. You know, I was curious, how long does it take to get from Egypt to the promised land? And so I looked up, how long does it take to get from Cairo to Jerusalem, if you walk? And most things said, about six days. It took them 40 years. And of course, the reason was because even though the wives were complaining, the men would not stop and ask directions. They just kept on walking around there in the promised land 40 years. But the truth is, it wasn't about getting to the promised land. Something needed to happen on the journey. They needed to be growing and learning. You see, the most important thing was they had to learn, how do you deal with this gift of freedom? They had been in bondage, they had been in slavery, and now God set them free. How do you deal with the gift of freedom? How do you use it? This morning, I want us to begin a new sermon series, Let My People Go. And what we're going to be looking at is this issue of what does it mean at times to be in slavery, to be in bondage? Too many things. And how does God call us and grant us freedom so that you and I can live in such a way as that we become the people we believe God has called us to be? How do you and I get out of bondage? How do we get out of slavery? How do we go forward in a new way? What we're going to be talking about is this issue of God's giving us the gift of freedom and we get to choose how to use that freedom. And it's where I want us to start today, looking just at a broad overview, as we understand the purpose of the story. And there's just two things that I want to say. First of all, when the people of Israel got out of bondage, when God wrestled them free from the Pharaoh and they went into the, the wilderness, the first place they go is Sinai. They go and they get the law. Isn't that interesting? You get freedom, and then you get the law. You see, with freedom comes responsibility. And when you're free, you have to learn how to use that freedom, 
And the law is supposed to guide you in how you use your freedom. We tend to think about law as the very thing that prohibits you from doing something or puts an edge to what you can do. But the law should be seen as a guide to how to use your freedom. Remember earlier this year we were looking where Jesus said, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. On these two laws depend all the law and all the prophets. Here's the law that Jesus was talking about. The Big Ten. It's where it started. What are these Ten Commandments about? The first four talk about how to love God. The second six talk about how to love your neighbor. So the law is supposed to be teaching us how do you use your freedom and making the choice to say, the priority in my life is going to be to love. To love God and to love others. rather than just about living for me. The great temptation in our freedom is it becomes all about me. And I forget what it means to make choices about loving God and loving others. Right now there's so many great sporting events that are going on. I love sports and I love this time of year. I mean, here we have the women's softball tournament going on right here in Oklahoma City and both our teams are doing incredibly well. I mean, it, that is so much fun and drawing huge crowds. It seems like every weekend there's a great golf tournament on. NBA playoffs continue tonight. There's been the playoffs in hockey, the NHL. Baseball is going on. I mean, it's a great time of year. And the other day I was flipping through channel and happened to catch the New York Yankees playing. And it made me think about Lou Gehrig. I'm a big fan of Lou Gehrig. Seeing them play... I thought about maybe the greatest first baseman that has ever played in Major League Baseball, Lou Gehrig. He played for the Yankees for 17 years, multiple All-Star, World Series champion. They retired his number when he retired. Just an incredible player, but also a wonderful human being. It turned out that his name is Heinrich Ludwig um, Gehrig. You know that he's not from Scotland. Heinrich Ludwig Gehrig. They just called him Lou. His parents were German immigrants and they struggled in the New World. His father had a hard time keeping a job. His mother worked really hard to try to keep food on the table, a roof over their head. He grew up in school and in the eighth grade when he graduated, all the people who were in his class went and got jobs to help support the family. But Lou's mother wanted him to stay in school. And so she worked extra hard and said, you're going to high school, and then you're going to college, and you're going to be an engineer. So he stayed in high school. And going to high school, he did well. But the most important thing that happened, he got introduced to baseball. And he started playing baseball in high school, and he loved it, and he excelled. So much so when it came time to graduate, his mother's thinking, how is he going to get to go to college? She started looking at the one ads and she got a job as a house mother at a fraternity at Columbia. 
And if you have a job as a house mother in Columbia, then your relatives can wind up coming to school. And he got a scholarship and he still had to do some work. But now he was in at Columbia with some financial support. And what did he do at Columbia? He played baseball. And he was so good his freshman year, his sophomore year. What he didn't know was there was a scout from the Yankees that had been watching him for a number of years. And this scout from the Yankees thought, this guy is going to be a superstar. So at the end of his sophomore year in college, he came to Lou Gehrig and said, here's a contract to play professional baseball for the New York Yankees. And Lou took the contract, and you didn't know what to do. In your freedom, you get to choose. Do you go play this frivolous game with no security? Do you stay in school, get your degree, become an engineer? He went to a professor in the business school who was a friend that he trusted, and he came in and said, here's the contract that the Yankees have offered me. What do you think I should do? The professor looked at the contract. Then he looked at Lou's grades. Then he looked at Lou and said, go play baseball. <laughs> and so he did. And the Gehrigs were never poor again. He was so successful. And he took care of his mom and his dad. And he went on to this incredible career. He was known as the Iron Man. He played 2,130 games in a row, never missing because of an injury. That was just unheard of. But in 1939, he found himself having a hard time moving. He just wasn't running the bases the same. His swing wasn't the same. Something was wrong, and he couldn't figure it out. It was his wife who got him an appointment at Mayo Clinic. He went over to Mayo, and there they diagnosed him with ALS, what would become known as Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS, where your muscles begin to atrophy, starting on your lower extremities, moving up your body till it hits your lungs, and then you die. It doesn't affect your mind. You slowly become trapped in your body. What a diagnosis for an incredible athlete. Obviously, he told the Yankees he had to retire. And the Yankees decided they wanted to have a Lou Gehrig day, July the 4th, 1939. And Lou Gehrig said, no. They said, everybody wants it. You have to do this. He finally agreed. So on July the 4th, 1939, there in Yankee Stadium, I mean, it was packed. When you say standing room only, there wasn't even room to stand. There were so many people who came to the ballpark. And when the game was over, they put up a microphone at home plate, and the 1927 Yankees lined the first base sideline. It's sometimes said it's the greatest team in the history of baseball, even to this day. The 1939 Yankees were lining up on the other side, Lou Gehrig came out and he stood there near home plate looking down at his feet. And the MC came out and began talking about, you accomplished this and you did that and you did this and people are cheering. He's just looking down. 
They start bringing out gifts from this people and gifts from that one, laying them at his feet. Finally, they got through and said, would you like to say a word? He said, no, turn to leave. He wasn't a speech giver. He was a baseball player. But the people started chanting, Lou, Lou, Lou. And he stopped and turned around and came back to the microphone. And now he looked up in the stands for the first time. Looked at all these people. He didn't have a speech written out. It was off the cuff. Spontaneous. I want to read you what he said. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. But today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I've been in ballparks for 17 years, and I've never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it a privilege to associate yourself with such fine-looking men as standing in uniform in the ballpark today? Sure, I'm lucky. When the groundskeepers and the office staff and writers and old-timers and players and concessionaires all remember you with gifts, that's something. When you have a wonderful mother-in-law who takes sides with you in squabbles against her own daughter, that's something. When you have a father and a mother who work all their lives so you can have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who's been a tower of strength and shown more courage than you dream existed, that's the finest that I know. So I close in saying, I might have had a bad break, but I have an awful lot to live for. Thank you. It's been called the greatest retirement speech in sports history. And I went back and I read it over and over again. And what struck me so clearly was when you're facing a difficult moment in your life, when you're facing death, what you think about is those you love and those who love you. And that's where he found strength and meaning. I'm the luckiest person on the face of the earth. And he starts to name all these people. Coaches, friends, concessionaires, mom, dad, mother-in-law, wife. You start going through the list. And I thought, do you understand? You and I have been given freedom. And we get to choose the priorities of our life, the foundation of our life, the things that matter. You're free and you get to choose. The law said, you'll be wise if you choose to love the Lord your God and if you love your neighbor as yourself. If that becomes the foundation of your life, then when you come to those difficult moments, when you face your death, then you can even say, I'm the luckiest person on the face of the earth. For I think about those that I love and those who have loved me. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to be loved by my Creator? 
changes everything. And secondly, Moses wanted to, needed to have the people of Israel there in the wilderness so he could teach them how to be community. Teach them what it meant to be a family of faith. You see, when you and I get freedom, it's easy for us to think about me. What do I want? What do I like? But you start to learn as we mature that my decisions affect you. And your decisions affect me. Is it me or we? How we use our freedom affects the we. And so how we choose to live is going to determine whether we're a community, a family, or whether we're a bunch of individuals. Moses was with the people of Israel saying, we're God's people. It is God who has gotten us free from bondage and slavery, and now we can be a bunch of individuals out here, or we're going to be God's people, a community, the family of faith. And your choices will affect me and my choices affect you. Will we think about how we use our freedom? When Moses went to the Pharaoh, he said, let my people go so that they can serve me. And the way we serve God is by blessing his children, by helping one another. That's the choice you get to make in your freedom. Steve Hartman had a great story recently about a, uh, a little girl. Uh, her name was Ellie uh, Dowdy. Ellie Dowdy. She lived in Amherst, Virginia. Was 11 years old. And 11 years old, this little girl loved baseball. That's, that's all she thought about, talked about. When she was awake, it was all about baseball. And what she dream was, was she wanted to be a, a commentator, a sports commentator, calling the games. And she loved it so much that she volunteered and she became the commentator at the junior varsity at the high school near her home. And she'd be there at the games, calling the games, the balls and the strikes and talking about what happens. At home during the season, she would turn on games and then she would turn off the sound and she would be the one who's calling the game. She'd be practicing. What do you say? How do you describe the game? I mean, 11 years old, and she took it that seriously. And that's what she was doing. The only problem was she knew that girls couldn't grow up to be sports commentators in baseball. Until one day she was listening to one of her teams and they were playing the Baltimore Orioles. And she heard Melanie Newman as a sports commentator for the Baltimore Orioles. She had never heard a woman being a commentator for baseball, play-by-play. -play. So her dad took her to Baltimore to a Baltimore Orioles baseball game, and they went into the part of the stands right below where the, uh, the press box was, and they had seats down front, and she had made up a sign, and she held it up. Hey, Melanie, do you need help in the booth? <laughs> and... Melanie's partner, the guy who was helping to call the game, and Melanie, they see her down there. The guy's going, Melanie, look at that, look at that. What do you think about that? They sent security down to her, and they brought her back up into the booth. 
And there, Ellie and Melanie got to meet, and they visited, and she saw just how serious this little girl was and what she was doing. So they made an appointment for the next week for her to come back and to truly come up and get to help call the game with her. And so she did. And when she, after had her opportunity, she was back down in the stands, and she had a sign she was holding up, and the sign said, Melanie is fire. And they came and they interviewed Ellie Dowdy and they asked her about the experience and she said, you know, I, I want Melanie to see that lots of younger girls are looking up to her. Because when Melanie was growing up, she had to push through the idea that only men can do that. I want to say thank you. When they went to Melanie and told her what Ellie had said, and they asked, what do you feel about that? She started to cry. And she said, I paid a lot of dues to get here. And the hope is that when those little girls make those signs, their dues are so much less. To make decisions to help one another. Decisions that aren't just about me, but about we. That in our freedom, we can choose to help lift people up. That we open doors for people that they cannot open themselves. That we're doing the things to help someone that they could not do for themselves. That's community. That's the family of faith. In our freedom, we can make all the choices just about me. Or we make choices about we. What's good for us all? How do we help those of the community? When Lou Gehrig had to suddenly face his own death, they told him he might have five, maybe ten years. The truth of the matter is, he had two. All he got was two more years. Didn't know how much time he would have, but he knew the end was coming soon. And so many people came to him and said, look, we'd love to ask you to do an endorsement for this. We'll give you a contract for that. You want to come and give speeches? You want to wind up, come here and just standing at the door of this restaurant, we know we'll pay you a bundle because we know so many people will come in. But he turned it all down. What he did was he asked the governor of New York could he be appointed to the parole board? You see, growing up in New York and where he did so poor in a rough neighborhood, he saw so many of his friends get into trouble as young people. And he knew that so many people really just needed a second chance. And he believed that if parole was used correctly, people could get a second chance. So he wanted to serve on the parole board. And he'd start to go visit prisons. And he wouldn't let the press come. He didn't want the press there. This was about him getting to know someone and them getting to know him and talking about what would a second chance look like. And so he started spending his time serving on a parole board, visiting the inmates. Behind his desk, he had a picture. And the picture was of the 1927 World Series 
and it showed Lou Gehrig coming around third, sliding into home, and being tagged out by the catcher. And a reporter saw this and, and asked him, said, why in the world do you want to have a picture of you being tagged out at home plate in the World Series? I'll read you what he said. Well, you know, when Combs came to bat, he got a single. And then Koenig got up, and he beat out a hit. And then Babe Ruth came up, and he hit a towering shot that never got out of the infield, and he was out. And then I came up and hit a shot into the outfield. And then I was rounding first, and I was digging for second. I came around second, and I was heading for third. The coach was waving me on. I rounded third and headed for home. And when I got there, the catcher had the ball. And I was out. But I did think about the fact I drove in two runs. I drove in two runs. I made a difference. Things don't always work out the way you hope, but you still make a difference. Things may not work out the way you hope, but you still make a difference. If in your freedom you choose to make love your priority, a love for God and a love for one another, when you choose for community over self, it may not work out exactly the way you had hoped or want, but you make a difference. Moses isn't going to make it into the promised land. But because they wandered in the wilderness, he made a difference. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.
Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.